we're kind of nearing our way to the end here. We've got tonight and then next week and we're done. And uh, I've been trying to say to you every single week that the book of Exodus is telling the story of what happened then historically, but it's also telling the bigger story of the universe. And it invites us to ask ourselves, okay, what is my story and how might my story fit in with this bigger story? And so tonight uh, we come to a famous, another famous passage in Exodus chapter 32, and this looks a little daunting, so I'm not going to read all of this. I'll cut it where I'm going to cut it. But um, if you would, turn your attention with me to Exodus chapter 32. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll kind of read through the end of verse 35. It begins like this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters were wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 19, but here's what happened in the interim. God sees this, God gets angry, and Moses intercedes and prays for the people. Verse 19. So Moses comes back down the mountain. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burnt it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattering it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Delicious. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites rallied to him. And then he said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. 
And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray and we'll consider it together. Let's pray. Father, would you by your great mercy come and attend to the reading and now the teaching of your word. Spirit, would you open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts so that we would be drawn to who you are and to what you have done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year I heard a story from another RUF campus minister friend of mine that was too good to just not share with you. It's a true story. It, was, it took place um, when this friend of mine was in high school and his dad worked for this big company called Multimedia. So this is one of these big sort of national conglomerate things that owned baseball teams and talk show hosts back in the day. Huge, massive um, company headquartered up in New York City. And my friend said that, you know, every now and, now and then, as most uh, companies need to have it happen, you need to conduct an internal audit where you make sure that the money that the company is saying it's going is going where they're saying it's going. So they sent two of their most trusted employees up to New York City to do this two-week-long internal audit. So the two guys go up there. Now, and, and by the way, there was this hotel that this company had this arrangement with. Fancy hotel, had a relationship with. And so these two guys are posted up in this fancy hotel for two weeks conducting this internal audit. And towards the end of this two-week period, the company gets a phone call from the hotel. And it turns out on the very last day of these two guys' stay, one of the housekeepers walks into their room before they were about to leave, and she sees, or he sees, one of the housekeepers sees, on the bed were open suitcases packed to the brim with candy. Now, you know when you um, walk out of like a barbecue joint or a Mexican food joint, like sometimes they have those little bowls of like mints, and you grab one or two, but inevitably someone in your party grabs like a handful. Well, this hotel had this lobby with bowls of candy set up. And so these guys, every day as they would walk through to wherever they were going, they would grab a handful and stuff it in their pocket. And you can imagine over the course of two weeks how much candy they accumulated and stuffed suitcases full of it. Why? I don't know. But... um, Maybe it was to bring it to their kids. Maybe there's a black market. for I don't know what it was. So anyway, they have all this candy. The housekeeper sees it. Hotel calls the company. And you've got to imagine these guys, as they're walking through, getting this candy, they've got to be thinking, this is not really a big deal. It's just candy. Maybe I'm grabbing a little more than I probably should. No one else has taken it, apparently. So what's the big deal? Well, what didn't seem like a big deal quickly became a big deal because they found themselves sitting across the table from their boss looking at them saying, you are fired. And they lost this very successful, very important corporate job, corporate job for stealing candy. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I think that story really shows how easily we justify our behavior. It's just a little candy. It's not a big deal. It's just a little white lie. I'm shaving the truth just a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. I just, okay, I just went a little too far this weekend. Not a big deal. I just copied the answers on that one assignment. NBD. I, um, you know, I just messed up just this one little time. It's, It's not a big deal. 
And sometimes it takes someone from the outside to show you, yeah, what you're doing is actually crazy and foolish. And in some situations, completely terrible. And, and, it, and it takes someone from the outside to look at you and to kind of wake you up so that you realize, yeah, holy crap, I've been stealing a suitcase full of candy. That is kind of a big deal. And so I think this passage functions in a very similar way to us. It, it, it comes in from the outside and it dissects and gets to the very nature and the root of what sin is. The ugliness of it, the foolishness of it, even though on the surface it doesn't look like it's that big of a deal. So, so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at just two things. We're going to look at the anatomy of sin and then the remedy to sin. There you go. Two points. Hashtag NBD. The anatomy of sin and the remedy of sin. So first let's look at the, um, let's look at the anatomy. Well, here, you know, just in case this is your first time or whatever, and you're kind of jumping into the story, here's where we are in the Exodus story. The people of Israel have been enslaved for 400 years. God mercifully busts them out of slavery, rescues them, brings them into the wilderness. He gives them food. He gives them drink. And he brings them to the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And last week we saw that he gave them the Ten Commandments as instructions on how to enjoy their relationship with him. And next week we'll see what he does the rest of the time. He's given Moses instructions for how to build this thing called the tabernacle, which will be the climactic crescendo to this whole semester, the tabernacle. That's next week, though. So here's where we are in the story. Moses has already gotten the Ten Commandments. He's come back down. They said that they're going to obey all this stuff. He goes all the way back up to the mountain, and that's where verse 1 picks up the story. Moses is on the mountain with God, getting instructions about this tabernacle thing, and the people of Israel are at the base of the mountain waiting, waiting for a word, waiting for instruction. And we find out in another verse that they have been waiting for 40 days. Now imagine camping for a month and a half. That's what they're doing, waiting. And verse 1 basically tells you, they just kind of got tired of waiting. They grew impatient, which I get it. You know, I, I'm probably the most impatient person that I know. Like, I, like I lose my mind like when a YouTube video like does, it's like buffering. It like drives me crazy. <laughs> someone doesn't text me back in like three seconds. I'm like ready to hurt someone. So I get it. I get the impatience. I get the fact that they were sick of waiting. And so they grow impatient. They get Aaron to fashion this calf made out of gold. And verse four tells you that Aaron gathers up everybody's gold bling and their earrings and their, you know, their, um, the grills and whatnot. And so he gathers it all together and he melts down and fashions this gold calf out of it. And they basically say, look, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. And verse 5 tells you, verse 5, Aaron refers to this as the Lord. So what you see Aaron doing, he's not, he's not replacing the God of the Bible with some pagan worship, saying this is some other false God. He's basically saying, this is the God of the Bible. Let's worship this thing. Now, on the surface, that, again, this is kind of like the candy deal. It doesn't look like that big of a deal, right? They're trying to worship. They're trying to kind of do like this corporate worship thing. They're just sort of making this gold calf to do it. But if you look at verse 30, verse 30, God evaluates this as a great sin. Massive Colossal sin, so much so that you know, in this passage that, that the passage that I skipped, God threatens; He wants to destroy all of them over this. Like this is kind of a big deal. Why is this a big deal? Well, okay, you have to get into the heart of what's going on with the Israelites, and that's where you can kind of get into the anatomy of, of sin. Think about first the heart of the Israelites. They're waiting 
they're waiting, they're waiting, and they get sick of waiting on God. And so they say, okay, God's not working according to my calendar. Life's not going according to my script. So I'm going to seize control and do something about it. I'm not going to wait on God. I'm going to elevate myself into the position of, okay, I I call the shots here. And then to fashion God into an image. Here's what's so upsetting about that in God's sight. It's to make God manageable. It's to have God, yes, but to have him so whittled down that you literally can put him in your pocket. It's to have God, but to have him on your terms. It's to have God um, be controllable, malleable, um, immediate, concrete. It's basically to have a God that you've customized. A a God that you can kind of tell whatever you want to. So so you, you put all this together. Put all these pieces together. And what does that tell you about the foundational anatomy of sin? It tells you that sin at its most basic level is an elevation of self. It's a promotion of self to the place of God. It's to say, God, I will call the shots. Life will work according to my schedule, my timetable. And I'm willing to acknowledge that you're there, but I'm going to put myself in such a, a, a position that I even have the authority to tell you what you are like. You are beneath me. So you can basically summarize it this way. Sin is you substituting yourself for God. That's the basic anatomy of sin, is you substituting yourself for God, you putting yourself in the position of God. Because here's the great thing about golden calves. They don't talk back to you. They can't tell you no. They can't offend you. They can't contradict you. This is why, by the way, the gods of Oprah and Joel Olstein are wildly popular in our culture. Because their gods are customized gods. They're only affirming you. They're only encouraging you. They're just there to always affirm every desire and every decision that you have. And so this may sound backwards, but one of the ways that you can know that you're in a relationship with the real God is when God contradicts you. It's when God actually offends you. It's when God says something through his word that you actually are troubled by. That may be a sign that you're actually relating to the real God of the Bible. Because, you know, look at us. We're we're a room of progressive, western, modern Americans. And what God says about sex and sexuality cuts across the grain of what we typically think. It should offend us. What God says about how we should relate to our family, how we should relate to our church, how we should relate to community, offends our individualistic sensibilities. And if it doesn't offend you, then you're not listening. If you are listening and it does offend you, if it does contradict you and upset you at some level, then maybe that's a sign that you're actually beginning to relate. At least at a foundation, at an initial stage, you're at least beginning to relate to who he really is. A God that actually will talk back to you, that will contradict you. I mean, I think about it like this. One of the ways that I know that I have a good, loving relationship with my wife, Catherine, is that we fight. We have disagreements. We have conflict. Uh, There are times when I wish uh, that I could do the imperious curse from Harry Potter. You remember that? I know it's one of the unforgivable curses, but it's it's one of the curses where, you know, you wiggle your little wand thing and... um, (laughs) 
and it, uh, it puts someone basically under mind control. You have control over them. They, they, they do whatever you want them to do, do whatever you want them to say. And so there are times when I wish, man, that would be awesome if I could do that to my wife. And I, and I man, I, sh- I should say that with more shame than I, and my tone is communicating. Because if that happened, if I could put an imperious curse on my wife, no more contradicting me, no more arguing with me, no more saying no to me, I could just always get my way, and that would be awesome. The only problem with that would be I'm no longer in a marriage with a real person. I'm in a relationship with you know, a zombie under my mind control, a robot that I've programmed to do and say whatever I want them to do and say. So if your God only ever affirms you and encourages you, only ever sort of, if he never says no to you, never offends you, never contradicts you, then you've effectively put an imperious curse on God. You have a golden calf, as it were. You're in a relationship with a figment of your imagination. Because the God of the Bible does talk back, and he does contradict, and he does offend. At least he should. So I I want you to see um, the fallout of this before we move on to the next next point. There, there There are practical consequences of this. If you make this heart move where you prioritize yourself over God, you call the shots, you're in control, you have the authority to even tell him what he's like, then here's one of the fallouts of this. Here's the first fallout. On the one hand, you'll never be able to take responsibility for your failures. If you're the king of the universe, functionally speaking, you'll never be able to admit when you're wrong. This is exactly what we see with Aaron in the story when Moses comes up to Aaron and confronts him about what's going on. Look at what Aaron says in verse 22. Aaron goes, don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You see what he's saying? He's blame shifting. This is not my fault. It's theirs. These are like crazy people. They're prone to evil. They're always doing something wrong. And look at what he says next. It's my favorite Verse of this whole story, verse 24. Aaron says, I said to them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It's like it just kind of happened. I had no control over this. But you see what he's doing here, right? he's, He's minimizing his sin so that he manages his image. He's trying to make himself look a lot better than he actually is. Because that's what happens. If you're the functional God of the universe... You are always in damage control mode. Your life is a sophisticated PR campaign to make yourself look good. This is how it works with me. Let me give you an example from a couple of years ago. I was leading a Bible study with RUF at um, my old school. And I don't know if you've ever led a Bible study before, but it's pretty terrifying as it gets closer to the start of the Bible study. So let's like say it started at 3 o'clock. And you're in there in the room by yourself, and it's two minutes till three, and no one's there. And now it's 3.05, and no one's there. And now it's 3.15, and no one's there. And you're starting to think, I don't think anyone's coming. And on, on this one particular day, no one did come, just me in an empty room. And because, you know, I do say this sadly, most of my life, I feel like I do live with me at the center of the universe. I do live with me as the functional king of the world and God's second place. And so because this is what was going on this particular day a couple years ago, I did the exact same pattern that Aaron did. I went into blame shifting. Ah, students. 
so stupid. They're busy. They don't care about anything. They should care about themselves. Selfish. Blame shifting. Then I went into personal damage control, meaning like no one can ever find out about this. <laughs> no one can know that and no one showed up. And if someone asks me about it later today, how was Bible study, I'm really going to be tempted to lie. And I'm certainly not going to Instagram it. I'm going to wait. Um, I'm not going to Instagram an empty room. I'm going to wait for a couple of days later until we have our large group meeting and then take, you know, Instagram that and then crop out the empty seats on the edges so it looks like there's more people there that are actually there so that I look good. And that's what happens. When, when you're the king of the universe, you can't admit when you're wrong and your life is a constant, exhausting, sophisticated PR campaign to make yourself look better than you really are. And it's awful. But that's one of the fallouts of the anatomy of this move. But that's not the worst fallout. Let me show you the worst fallout of this whole story. In verse 19, when Moses comes back down the mountain and he sees what's happening, he has these, the tablets of the covenant and he throws them down on the ground and they shatter. And it's this graphic image to basically communicate Israel's relationship with God is now shattered. It's fractured. It, it's it's Damaged, And in fact, you know, in verses 26 through 28, God brings about this immediate judgment on 3,000 people who were willfully defiant right then and right there. But for everyone else that was kind of hanging around, there is this huge unresolved issue. What's going to happen? They're all guilty. They all clearly deserve God's judgment. And they are all outside of this relationship with God right now. It's, the covenant has been fractured. So this is the anatomy of sin. This is the breakdown. When, you, when, when, when sin is you substituting yourself for God, you're the king of the universe. You can't admit when you're wrong. You're always blame shifting. Your life is a huge PR campaign. And now you're out of sync with the God of the universe. So what's the remedy then? If that's the inner anatomy of it, what's the remedy to it? Well, let's keep going. Because Moses gives us a hint. He assumes responsibility for the situation, and he begins to act as Israel's mediator. A mediator, as you know, is just is the go-between. It's the middleman between God and Israel. He steps into the gap. And I don't know if you caught what he said, but I'll reread it. Look at verse 30. He says this. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. He's calling upon God's mercy. Please forgive them. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. See what he's saying? He's basically saying, look, make me pay for what they have done. If you're not going to just forgive them, then blot me out of your book. In other words, condemn me in their place. Condemn me instead of them. And here's where we get a little hint to what the remedy is. Their only remedy, the only remedy to this whole mess is for, a, is for the sacrificial work of a mediator to come in. It's for, the, it's for the work of a sacrificial mediator. And so this really, this kind of reads to me like this point of the story, this sort of... Uh, the, the inspirational part of the story where the guy at the end sort of steps up and is kind of willing to take the bullet for someone else. He's willing to lay his life down, sacrifice his life for someone else. It's very inspirational. There's strings in the background. It's very beautiful. And then the kind of the record scratches in verse 33. 
Here's what God says. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. God's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'll pass. Now, why, why would God pass on this offer? Frankly, it's because Moses was insufficient. He could not atone for a sin that he himself was guilty of. He couldn't pay the penalty for someone else when he owed the same penalty. Now think about it like this. Let's say you and I decide to go bust up a bank, rob a bank, and we roll up in there and we're shooting the place up. And this is awful. Sorry, this is an awful illustration. But we shoot the place up. And before we can leave, the you know, SWAT team comes in, takes us down alive, and we're arrested. And you know, we go through the whole process. And by the end of the whole sort of legal proceedings, we are both found guilty and both given uh, lethal injection. You know, in 30 days, uh, both of you will be executed because of your crimes against humanity. Now, if I were to come you know, to the judge and basically say, I want to offer myself to die in my friend's place so that they can go free. That, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't make sense because I'm, my life is owed. I'm still, I'm like, there's still a penalty over my head. I can't offer to remove your penalty if there's a penalty over my head. So what we need is someone to come in from the outside who has no penalty over their head. Someone to come in from the outside who has no guilt. And it's interesting when you fast forward and go to the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews goes at length to compare Moses and Jesus to make this point. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the mediator that Moses was pointing to. Moses was a great mediator, but he wasn't good enough. We need the ultimate mediator, the true mediator. And so consider this. In Philippians 2, it tells you that the glorious, perfect, righteous, sinless second person of the Trinity, here's what it says about him, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He becomes 100% like us. Did you catch that? God reverses the pattern of sin. We make God into an image and it's, it condemns us. God makes himself into our image in order to save us. Put it this way. If sin is man substituting himself for God, salvation is God substituting himself for man. If sin is man substituting himself for God, then salvation is God substituting himself for man. And so Jesus comes to earth 100% man and yet 100% God. So he's righteous. He's, there is no guilt over him. He's, he's sinless. And therefore, he alone can stand in the gap. He alone can take on the penalty to atone for that which is due to us. He on the cross is blotted out of God's book so that your name could be written in the book of life. Even though you and I are both guilty of everything that we've been talking about tonight. You know, some of you have heard me tell this story before, so um, forgive me. But I think it just sort of perfectly captures what we're talking about here. This took place um, a year and a half ago in Massachusetts. It's about this guy named Juan Rodriguez. My boy Juan was hanging behind um, the, the table. He, he was a clerk at sort of like this um, 7-Eleven kind of thing, corner market deal. And in walks this 20-year-old, 
and pulls out a knife and sticks it to Rodriguez's face, demanding money. Rodriguez is a 55-year-old man, doesn't know what to do, and at some point distracts the guy in order to pull out a baseball bat and then chases sort of this thug out of the 7-Eleven store, the corner store. So they go out onto the street, and now imagine this. You've got a 55-year-old man with a baseball bat chasing this 20-year-old kind of thug who's faster, running ahead of him. And so Rodriguez is calling out for help, and there's this group of young men that see this, and they run over and they tackle the robber, long enough for you know, Rodriguez to catch his breath and pull out his phone and call the police. And so as he's on the phone with the police, he looks over and he sees that there's a mob of about eight to ten of these men that are now mercilessly pounding and beating and kicking this robber. They've ripped off his clothes, he's down to his underwear, and now he's a bloody mess that they're just pounding on the concrete. And Rodriguez drops the phone, runs over to the mob, and throws his body on top of the robber to shield him, to protect him. And now the blows are raining down upon his back until the mob eventually stops. This is, this is the man that had just had a knife in his face. Cops come, paramedics come, he's taken to the hospital, he's in critical condition, but his life is saved because of what Rodriguez did. And I think it's just this... It is this beautiful image of what this story is about. Because when we sin, what we're basically doing is we're sticking a knife in God's face and we're saying, we don't want you. We actually want you out of the picture. We want to be God, not you. We want control. We want to call the shots. We don't want you. And God in his grace, when he had every right to pour out his judgment upon us, what he does is he rather he sends his son to cover us. So that the reign of God's judgment falls upon Jesus instead of us. So when we take refuge hidden in Christ by faith, what we deserve falls on him. He gets blotted out of the book. We get written in. He dies so that we might live. And when you begin to see that and come to terms with the depths of your own sinfulness, and yet you see and experience the beauty and the mercy of God, that is what begins to warm your heart to actually trust him. To trust him when your life doesn't go according to your script. It, it, it frees you to, to, let, to relinquish control. It frees you to worship this God that actually offends you sometimes, contradicts you, because you can trust his heart for you. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to offer you an invitation to turn your heart and to turn your attention to the real God, like the God of heaven and earth, like the only one that there is, a God who loves you enough to confront you, to offend you, and yet a God who is gracious enough with you to atone for your sin of replacing him and rejecting him. So consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, give us the grace to turn towards you, to repent, to pull our heart back towards you where we would find not judgment, not shame, not scolding, not a lecture, but actually find grace. Find a God that was willing to give up your own son in order to get us sinful, rebellious, faithless, though we are. So, Father, melt us and move us once again by your grace that we may be empowered and emboldened to worship you, to trust you, to follow you. 
May that be true of me tonight and for my friends here as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.